You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2017. Today's episode is titled, Sin in Stakeholders. The essence of any organization is the people. When an organization has the right people doing the right things for the right reasons, the results will be right. Likewise, when an organization has the wrong people, the results will be wrong. Management must recognize the bias to sin, the inclination to think and act contrary to God's standards in all people, and therefore in all stakeholders. One way to detect the level of sin in anyone is to listen to what he or she says. Wise managers are good listeners and understand that to deliver excellent value requires stakeholders who are internally motivated to obey God's standards, that is, people who are self-governing under God. The best way to build people who are self-governing under God is to build a culture of discipleship that empowers stakeholders to mature spiritually. For those stakeholders who refuse to be disciplined, the only options are sin management or termination. Given that sin management never works well, termination is generally the best choice. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Tongue. Well, this morning we want to continue our discussion about James, the book of James. We're in chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 12. Uh, just a little background. Uh, the book of James is an epistle that was written in the first century to early believers to try to guide them in how to live under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, there was no question, I think, in the minds of most of them that when you came to Christ, you had a responsibility now to be his servant. Today in our culture, people don't necessarily assume that. There are many people that think you come to Christ simply to get a ticket to heaven, and then you can go live the way you want to live. That is not New Testament Christianity. James wasn't dealing with people like we have today. He was dealing with people of the first century who were largely well-trained. They were theologically trained because they grew up in the Jewish synagogue system. So these people were knowledgeable in the Old Testament, but what they needed was now how to understand the Old Testament in light of Christ. So that is what he was talking about, what he was working on. So let's begin here this morning talking from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I want to read the text to you, uh, and then I will, um, I'll do some comments on it and make some application. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we will all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a, a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. Notice it's a kind of a, a dualism here that you see expressed in this reality. 
My brothers, those who th- those those who thought think ought not to be so. Excuse me. Let me read that again. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. This is James 3, verses 1 through 12. And I want to break it up into four sections here to look at the text and try to understand what James is really saying here. Just a a few more introductory comments, though. This is now a a continuation of what James began in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he starts out in verse 2, launching into the importance of metaphysical awareness. That is, seeing from God's perspective, seeing reality as God sees it. And chapter 1, then, is an explanation of how to deal with trials and tribulations of life, which in the first century, that was a very, very important issue. They were suffering. They were persecuted. That is, the Christian community was. And as a result, you know, they were continually under the heat of the culture. So they need to know how to see these things. And so James explains that God is there doing good things, perfecting them, using these things that are difficult to transform them. And then he launches into the importance of living in that reality and that true Christians live in that reality. James's standard for what Christianity is is very high. It's much higher than we have today. We typically will believe someone is a, a Christian if they say they're a Christian. That is not the standard we see in James. James is looking for reality in a person's life. You know, do their actions reveal the truth of Christ in them, the hope of glory? So that's the setup largely of chapter 1. And then chapter 2 continues on with the theme of walking in the reality of your faith. First, he talks about the dangers of, of making discriminations, judging people based on worldly metrics. He doesn't say don't judge. Many people draw the wrong conclusion here. What he says is you want to make distinctions based on God's standards. You want metaphysical awareness about how you make distinctions. Look at people the way God looks at them, and God doesn't look at the externals. He looks first and foremost at the heart. Now, notwithstanding that reality, he then gives us another an example where, where the externals do have value. And that is the externals now are ways to see the heart. Now, you can clearly be deceived by that, but given enough time and enough uh, interaction with people, you will eventually see the truth about their heart, even though they can hide and be hypocrites and say things and even pretend to do things that look right. You've got to look long enough and hard enough to really see truth about that person. So that's uh, the themes of chapter 2. Now chapter 3 turns to arguably one of the most critical themes of all, and that is the whole process of human communication. Now keep in mind the incredible importance of communication. Human communication is a tool that God has given us, and of all animate objects, arguably human beings have the greatest, most effective way to communicate. No other living being can communicate at the level that we can, as far as we can tell. And this appears to be an attribute that is from God, because God used communication to create the universe. So communication was his agent of creative power. So he then gives this to us, and he told us he made us in his image. So it appears that you know communication is an aspect of the communicable attributes of God 
that are part of his image in us. So this is a very critical thing. Now, once mankind fell, our ability to communicate is still there, but it's now tarnished. It's now defiled by sin. And we see that probably very clearly, most clearly, arguably, in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel story, where now these people are building this project, this illicit project. And it's illicit because of two things. One, uh, they were given a mandate to expand over the earth, and they decided to stop expanding. And two, they decided not, not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. So because of this illicit activity on their part, this illicit motive and disobedience, then they are judged. And the way that the project got judged was very simple. The Achilles heel of any organization is communication. If you disrupt the communication, then you will disrupt the organization and make it very ineffective, very inefficient, and it could be fatal, as it was in the case of the Tower of Babel. So the power of the tongue is tremendous. It is very, very important that we understand this, this, and we see it correctly. We make the right distinctions about our understanding about human communication. So the first distinction he wants to make is that he wants to give us a warning. There's a warning here to teachers. Now, if you're familiar with the fivefold ministry that Paul talks about in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, you know the teacher is one of those five equipping gifts. There's apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. These were called equipping gifts designed to equip us, that is, those who know Christ, for the various work assignments, the ministries that we're called to in the various areas of life. Now, since we believe God is holistic and has callings to all valid, licit work activities, then everyone that's got a workplace assignment, no matter what it is, has got to be equipped. And they need teachers to equip them. So there's a huge need for teachers to propagate truth. Of course, at the time this was written, the scripture to these, the audience of this book was the Old Testament. And the reason James wrote this was to provide them more, more perspective on the scripture, the Old Testament, in light of Christ, in light of the revelation of Christ, in light of the coming and the life and then the death, the burial and resurrection and ascension of Christ, all the aspects of Christ and what that meant and how that was all predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in him. And James wants to unpack that. He assumes they already know a lot about that. And so his focus is now on walking in the reality of all of that. So he doesn't spend hardly any time explaining theology. He spends his time applying theology. So he's talking now to teachers and giving them a warning, guys. He's saying, you guys need to be really very circumspect because you have increased revelation, because you have a need for increased revelation to fulfill what God's called you to do in equipping the saints for their various workplace assignments. But and the reality is, in a fallen state, we teachers are no different. And by the way, every one of us is a teacher on some level, whether we simply teach at home or we teach in the church environment or we teach in the workplace environment. Wherever we've been assigned, we're going to teach at some level. Some have the specific assignment of the equipping teaching that I mentioned in Ephesians 4, and I think that's probably what he has in mind here, that those teachers have to have more advanced teaching more advanced education, more advanced understanding. And to whom much is given, much is required. So we have an increased obligation to now obey the teaching that we have been given. 
the truth that we've been given. One of the principles that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 2 is that we're held accountable to the revelation that we have. Whatever we know that's true has come from God, either through general revelation, or which is the revelation of God in creation, or special revelation, which is the revelation of God in Scripture, or specific revelation, which is the revelation of God through his Holy Spirit for a specific person in a specific situation at a specific time. So those are the three sources of revelation. And whatever you have, you've got to steward it well. Teachers typically have more, and so they will be held to the higher level of accountability because they have more light, more truth than most have. But we're in a fallen state, for we all stumble. And this, the idea of stumbling simply implies that James assumes that you understand that mankind has fallen. There's no doubt. Mankind has fallen, therefore mankind stumbles. This is the general principle. We all stumble. This is not metaphorical. It's not hyperbole. It's true. We all stumble. There's no such thing as a perfect man, a complete man, someone who lives totally up to God's standards. No one ever does. Even in our redeemed state, we still have vestiges of the old nature in us that the Holy Spirit is working to eradicate. That's the process of sanctification. So in this state of where we are growing and maturing in Christ, we still will stumble. So we've got to be very cognizant of that. For if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a complete man. And we believe theologically that we don't enter completion, perfection, until we are in the presence of Christ. So while we're in this flesh, this body of flesh that we have, We are then incomplete. We are never perfected, but we should continually be growing asymptotically. Now, those of you may not know what asymptotic means, but it's a great picture of how we grow. An asymptotic line is a line that gets closer and closer to an axis in a graph. It's kind of think of this in terms of geometry. You've got a a graph and you have the, a line, a a graph, a a graph on that line coming down. And it's getting closer and closer to the x-axis, but it never, never gets there. That's called asymptotic, and that's the sense of this. You get better and better and better, improve, 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 but you never get there. You're always getting there. You're always arriving, but you never arrive until you transition to the next existence. So we, we can never be a complete man in existence, but we should always be growing. And we should learn how then to manage our tongue, manage our conversation, our communication well. That's part of growing up. It's a critical part because of the critical role the tongue plays. The next aspect of the role that human communication plays is the power of human human communication in verses 3 through 5. For he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So now he uses a... An equestrian metaphor here uh, talks about how we control horses. And those of you that have ever ridden a horse uh, successfully, you know you needed a bridle with a bit. And that bit was a tool by which you communicated to the horse your wishes. And if you had a horse that was tamed and knew how to to interpret your communication through the bit, then you could guide the horse where you wanted to go. So that's, that's the picture here. The tongue is like a bit, and that is the tongue guides us. And then he uses another metaphor from ships. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by the strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. So you see I've got a picture here 
uh, of a ship with a rudder. And you can see that we're just looking at the back end of this ship. We're seeing maybe a 25% of the ship. This is a huge ship. And we've got a little bitty rudder compared to the size of the ship. And yet that rudder is what guides the ship. And so that's a picture here of the power of the tongue. The power, the power of the tongue, it has life and death in its power. What you speak is very important. So we've got to, we've got to remember that and be careful about what we speak. This is a warning about, about what the tongue can do. So look at ships as though, also, though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wills. See, the pilot exercises his will and uses the rudder to direct things. So that's where the tongue is. The tongue is a small member. That is a small mem- member of our body. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So the tongue has a power to really take us off course quickly. Tremendous power to guide and direct our lives. Tremendous power to impact other people. Well, this is the power of human communication. Communication is a huge, hugely important issue in life, in all of life. Now, the next phrase of of this is verses uh, 6 through 7a, uh, where he talks about because of a fallen state, the tongue becomes then the agent to project our sin, which obviously is a warning. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life, and on and set on fire by hell. So you see I've underlined some phrases here. You see the tongue is, the tongue is a fire, and then again the tongue is set among one member. So I'm just noting how these these uh these metaphors that he's using to compare the tongue to. Now here the the fire is a picture of of really destructive force. Uh a picture of unrighteousness. And we're going to talk more about that in the remainder of the text, but he's giving you he's setting you up for that discussion here. He calls it a world of unrighteousness. That's a very interesting way he phrased it because that word world is the word cosmos. And cosmos is the word that refers to an arranged orderly system. So the universe is a cosmos. It's a arranged orderly system that God set in place. Well, there is also a world of unrighteousness, which is which is a arranged orderly system of rebellion against God. We don't normally think of unrighteousness as being, you know, characteristic of rebellion. We don't think of unrighteousness as being orderly, but it can be very orderly in its rebellion. You can have orderly rebellion. You can have systematic strategic rebellion. Sadly, I should sometimes see this in my grandchildren as they, I can see their wheels turning as they're coming up with strategies for how to, how to get around some rules or get around what their parents want them to do. Well, that happens to all of us. You know, the sin, sin, the vestiges of sin in us, get in the way, and they organize to oppose the will and ways of God. So the tongue becomes an agent, a vessel by which that rebellion is projected. So the tongue in is also set among one our members, as he's mentioned before, staining the whole body. And that word stating there is was also used in, in chapter 1 at the very end, where it was talking about what it was to be a true worshiper of God. And it, it gave us some traits like overseeing widows and orphans. You know, it's not visiting widows and orphans. That's what some of the translations say. It's actually overseeing, providing male oversight for those that don't have it. That's one aspect of a, wor- of a worshiper of God. And then he gave us another aspect. 
and that is a worshiper of God is unstained by the world. And that is unstained by non-biblical thinking, unstained by culture, unstained by people that are thinking contrary to the will and ways of God. So the tongue can be a vessel here to really cause staining because we can get into using our mouth and communicating like the world does with with a motive of rebellion against God. And we have to really protect against that. And when we are staining ourselves, and obviously this is a metaphorical sense of going astray, you know, going off course, we're setting on fire the entire course of our life. And furthermore, you know, it's going to be self-consuming because the very, you know, our tongue is going to be, we're going to be self-condemning. We're going to hold, we're going to wind up saying things that are going to hold our, we're going to be held against us. You know, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the law enforcement officials, they, uh, they give you warning when they arrest you that what will you say will be used against you or can be used against you. Well, what we say will can be used against us in the end when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So it really tells us we need to be very, very circumspect about what we say. Then he goes on to talk about how hard it is to control the tongue. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. In other words, we know how to tame animals. It's not a problem. You can see it. You can go to circuses. You can go to zoos. You can go to various settings. You see how pe- people know how to tame animals. When I was on safari in South Africa, um, we had a, uh, we were out driving around, and we had an elephant start charging at our vehicle. And I watched the driver. You know how he handled that? He had a gun up there. He didn't pull the gun. He simply took his hand and beat it on the hood of the Jeep. And the elephant stopped. I thought, wow, that was amazing. I was about ready to grab that gun. He wasn't going to get the gun. I wasn't going to get the gun. So, you know, we've got, we've, we've mastered a lot of this. We can do this. But when it comes to the tongue, the tongue is a huge challenge compared to, you know, we can do the animals, but we can't do the tongue. He goes on to say now how, how poisonous the tongue can be in the rest of this text here. He says it is, that is the tongue or human communication. Remember, the tongue is just a picture of human communication. It's a, it's a way to think of human communication. So it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's toxic. Oh, we gotta, oh, we gotta be very careful. This is, I mean, this is so critical that we understand how to communicate well and be very circumspect in what we say. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. How can we bless God and then curse those God has created? How can we do that? We cannot do that. That is so out of order. That is so inappropriate. That is so contrary to God. Every human being that God has made has been created in the image of God, and he's created them for a reason. There's a purpose why they exist. And so we have to respect them as created vessels. We don't respect their sin necessarily. We don't respect their actions necessarily if their actions are not lined up with God. We don't necessarily respect their words if their words don't line up with God but we respect them as people. We must respect all people as God's vessels. No matter what their lifestyle choices may be, no matter how we may disagree with them, we must respect them. We cannot curse them. That is inappropriate. 
So as a maxim, we want to be sure that we are using our tongues correctly. If we're claiming to worship God, you cannot curse those that God has created. He goes on to say this, and once, now he uses general revelation to illustrate a spiritual reality, which is important for us to see because we can learn spiritual truth by looking at general revelation. He's already given us a couple examples, the ship, the horse, the fire. Now he's going to give us some more examples here. He's going to talk about a spring, and then he's going to talk about reproduction after the own kind that you see with vegetation and trees. It says, does a spring for, uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Well, we know from just general revelation that that doesn't happen. That's, that's not the way reality works. We can, and so he's saying, so you know that to be true. You've experienced it. So he's appealing to an empirical reality, an empirical truth that we've all experienced and saying, that's a picture of this spiritual truth I'm trying to tell you. You cannot both praise God and curse men out of the same mouth. It is not possible. It is totally inappropriate because what God created, he called good. Even though it's now fallen, it still contains him and the goodness of him in it. And so we have to respect that creation. He goes on to talk about now the trees. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Well, the answer is no, it can't. We know that. Everybody knows that. Or how about a grapevine produce figs? No, it can't do that. We know that you can only reproduce after your own kind, that the the fruit reveals the internal reality. So what should come from your mouth should always reveal the internal reality of the goodness of your heart. Because Jesus tell, told us in reality that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, I know someone's going to say, wait a minute, I can say things I don't really believe. Yeah, you can. You can get away with those temporarily, but eventually you'll be caught. You can only be a hypocrite so long. Hypocrisy does not stand. It will be revealed by both your words and your actions in time. And so he's making the point here, really look hard at your heart. If your heart is right, you'll see God's creation the way he does. You'll be metaphysically aware of how he's created everything, and he's created it for his purposes and for his intentions. And though now the world has fallen, and there, there, there are certainly implications of that, and certainly we don't want to agree with the fallenness of it. In other words, don't agree with fallen thinking. We still respect what God has created. He's created mankind in his image. Whether they know him or not, every human being is created in the image of God. We cannot bless God and curse them. Not appropriate. So the the tongue can be very deadly poison. It can be restless evil when it's not mastered and controlled. So we have to continually try to bridle it and break it under the rule and reign of Christ. Now, as you know, this this book has got a number of commands in it because in the first century, they understood Christianity as uh, differently than we do today. They understood what what we call the Great Commission to be a mandate to worldwide discipleship, not worldwide evangelism as is common today. And they understood that the mark of a true believer was not only the, the, the signs of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, but also a believer who was coming under obedience to the commands of Christ. In fact, what we're largely to do is to reproduce ourselves is to find those who are humble, submitted, and teachable, and now begin to train them to obey the commands of Christ. So James has given us a series of commands that he would represent our commands of Christ that we are to follow. So I've just synthesized the teaching here 
uh, in this section into two commands that we should add to our list. And someone has asked me, well, how many commands of Christ are there? I have no idea. Hundreds, maybe thousands. Keep reading the Word of God and you'll find them. As you find the commands of Christ, incorporate the truth into your life and start obeying that command. So as you grow and mature in Christ, you become under more and more commands of Christ. This does not mean you're working your way to heaven. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, when you come to Christ, it's a sovereign work of God. The Holy Spirit touches you sovereignly, and you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. James chapter 1 tells you that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell you that. There's abundance of scripture that tells you salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's, it's started by the initial point is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit talked about in John 3. No one can, 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 uh, can regenerate themselves. You are regenerated solely as a sovereign act of God by the Holy Spirit. Now, once you've been regenerated, how do you know someone has been regenerated? Well, the sign is that they're now living a life of increasing obedience to Christ. You see text like 1 John chapter 2 lay that out so clearly. The way that we know we really know Christ is that Christ is being formed in us, and we increasingly, asymptotically think and act more like Christ. Over and over again, Christ is going deeper and deeper in us. So these commands are then ways that we take our responsibility in sanctification to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and to learn to walk in the will and ways of Christ. So you've got a couple of commands here to take on and hopefully walk in. Number one, teachers must live beyond reproach. Wherever you teach, be very, very humble. Be very, very circumspect. Because know this, that whatever you're teaching, you're accountable for. Teachers are given more revelation about truth uh, that they teach. In the process of learning and teaching, they are greatly blessed, since the teachers are even more accountable to the truth. To whom much is given, much is required. And the second command, I think, that you can synthesize from this teaching here is speak thoughtfully and wisely. Everyone is accountable for their words. Our words reveal the condition of our heart. Therefore, be very careful about your words. Be sure they're aligned with truth. This discipline requires continuous introspection. So this is a very strong commandment about being very careful about what we say. This is not saying we don't make distinctions. We do make distinctions. But we make distinctions the way God makes them, according to his standards, his metrics, his measuring stick, not according to worldly standards. Now I want to give you one application here, uh, one takeaway. Just about all of us on this call, no matter where you are, you're probably involved or have been or will be involved in some kind of organization. We would call these businesses, or it might be a church or it might be a nonprofit, uh, NGO. You're involved in an organization, and many of you will be managers. And if you're managers, then your responsibility is to align that organization with the will and ways of God. And so one of the things you have to get very clear on is the depravity of mankind and how the human tongue can be misused, how human communication can be a problem for us in making wise choices and wise decisions as managers. So organizations must remember the depravity of mankind, that is, organizational managers. Some people can use their tongue to pretend to believe in certain values and principles, but eventually the truth of what they really believe will be revealed by their words and actions. Therefore, wise managers will put less weight on first impressions, which are largely formed by a person's words, and put more weight 
on the words and actions observed over time. I think that is a very, very wise application of what we see in this teaching. So may the Lord give us grace to walk in the reality and humility of living wisely with our tongue and bridling our tongue and bringing our tongue under submission to the will and ways of God. In Jesus' name, amen. 